Well, good morning, Calvary Church. It's really good to be back here and see you guys. Really have missed being here. And even though it's a modified uh, type of worship, soon we'll be back together worshiping the way we used to. Really good to see you all. You know, um, I'm not much of a hymn guy, but every once in a while a hymn grabs me. Greatest Thy Faithfulness is just powerful. Just powerful. Okay, so in the mid-60s, during what was called the British Invasion of Rock and Roll, a group from London, England had a hit record. See, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones wrote a song entitled Satisfaction. And before I get to the words, let me step back a minute, go off something that Sean was talking about, and that's me preaching for the first time. Well, you don't just let somebody preach for the first time at Calvary. Simple. You just don't do that. So we have what is called a vetting committee, a sermon vetting committee for somebody like me, and we have to go through some rigorous training and some, actually some prerequisites. One of them is they vet your sermon. They look at your sermon to make sure you're on track, you're biblically sound, and you're not out there someplace else where heresy can creep in or whatever. But there's another aspect to this, and it's called the vetting of the delivery. Well, I have to say that the unanimous decision of the vetting of my delivery and my practices was I needed more punch in my, in my introduction. They say, if you start off well, it, it starts to roll from there. Well, on the other side of that coin, I have <clears throat> three daughters, Alyssa, who's probably listening on the internet, Bethany and Julianne, who are in the building someplace trying to hide right about now, and they're probably saying, they're probably starting to squirm in their seats saying, what is dad going to do that's going to embarrass me? Well, I had to choose between the vetting committee and their suggestions and my daughters and their well-being. <laughs> vetting committee, daughters. So, satisfaction. Satisfaction, I can't get no satisfaction, because I try, and I try, and I try, and I try. I can't get no, 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 no. Well, it goes on. I'm riding in my car, and a man comes on the radio. He tells me more and more some useless information supposed to fire my imagination. I can't get no satisfaction. Well, I'm watching my TV. Man comes on and tells me how white my shirt should be. But he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarette as me. I can't get no satisfaction. Well, I'm driving around the world, and I'm trying this, and I'm trying that. And well, I think you kind of get it. They go on and they give a few more examples of trying to find satisfaction in their world. Excuse me. 
and they, are, they come up short. Well, what's going on with this song? Well, despite, despite the mutilation of the English language, it does have a catchy hook, and it sums up the writer's frustration trying to find satisfaction in their world. You see, the Rolling Stones were considered the bad boys of British rock and roll, and with that came such a reputation of limos, private jets, celebrity status, money, drugs, alcohol, and wild living. All fall woefully short, hence again and again the repeated refrain, I can't get, <clears throat> I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try, I try and I try, I can't get no satisfaction. Another non-American notable, also from across the ocean, named Paul, wrote this statement in the early 60s regarding satisfaction. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. All right, you guys caught on. I'm not talking about Paul McCartney. And some of the more astute of you are probably saying, hey, that guy's not from the 60s. Well, he is, and then again, he isn't. You see, Paul wrote this in the first century to the Christians living in Philippi in 61 AD. So, technically, he's from the 60s. <laughs> Rel <laughs> the, the, the words are relevant to the Christians living in Philippi back in 61 AD. They fit the culture and the needs back then. But our God is a God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Inspiring the Bible, he put in the, those verses in there for those living in the first century. And he, they were powerfully impacted by them. But here now, in New Jersey, in the 21st century, these words are powerful and relevant to us today. I, internal, I entitled the sermon, Satisfaction Guaranteed, because I want us together to learn the secret of Christian contentment in a secular world. Satisfaction guaranteed, the secret to Christian contentment in a secular world. Please turn with me to Philippians. The chapter is four. We'll be reading verses 10 through 13. But before we go to the word, let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing on this time. <clears throat> Father in heaven, your word is eternal. You are a God of all gods. You are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the words written to the Philippians back then in 61 AD in the first century were valuable to them. But Lord, you knew us and you knew them. And though they're a different culture and a different time, your word is powerful and mighty to us today. I pray that you help me to impart these words out today in a way that will show their relevancy here in the 21st century that you would allow your word not to come back void, but to fulfill every purpose that you have intended. And I ask this in your precious name. Amen. Okay, Philippians 4, 10 through 13. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I was in need, because I have learned to be content 
in any and every situation. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being con content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Well, the passage is short, yet is replete with Bible truth and powerful, impactful truths for us today. It deals with Paul's thankfulness for the Corinthians' gift that they gave them. It shows the generosity of the Philippians and their love for Paul, and especially their love for Jesus. But it also shows Paul's learning how to find contentment in this world. The passage itself is pretty straightforward as far as terminology goes, but I did think it would be helpful to ask a question. And that question is, is this contentment a sin? I mean, there's really no thou shalt not be discontent, or is there? So Google, a uh, savvy tech guy that I am, I, I Googled it, and sure enough, I find six reasons disobedience, uh, contentment is disobedience, discontentment is disobedience to God. The premise here is, if we believe that God is sovereign, that means he's in control of everything, including our circumstance, if we believe that, then discontentment is mistrusting God. It also amounts to complaining against God's plan. Further, it exhibits a desire for us to be sovereign in, instead of God, and subtly or not so subtly, it communicates that God has made a mistake. Finally, finally it says, discontentment denies the wisdom of God and exalts our own wisdom. Well, it might be helpful to remember the Hebrews as they left Egypt. They went out into the desert under Moses' guidance. And in Exodus 16, 8, and I'm going to paraphrase this a bit, they begin to grumble. They need food, and they grumble to Moses. They need water, and they grumble to Moses. They need meat, and they grumble to Moses. And they grumble, and they grumble, and they grumble, and they grumble. And Moses is at his wit's end, and he's thinking, and he's praying to God. And it dawns upon him. He said, look, look, Hebrews, this isn't me. I'm just a messenger. I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing these miracles God is allowing me to, have, to, to do. You're not grumbling against me. You're grumbling against God. So I think at the very, very least, we can say discontentment would be displeasing to God. Well, that's going to bring me to my first point, which is contentment is learned, not earned. Contentment is learned, not earned. Philippians 4, 10 and 11 says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I was in need, because I have learned the secret to contentment in any and every circumstance. Well, the premise here is that contentment doesn't come naturally. It's not our default position. Paul comes right out and says it. I have learned to be content in any and every situation. He's clearly telling the Philippians, look, your default is discontentment. It's a behavior. You need to change it. You need to learn contentment. He's telling us that, too, by application. So 
We need to learn contentment. We need to learn how to do contentment. It doesn't come naturally. So how is contentment learned, not earned? Well, I, th oh, I think it's fair to say that we all know the story of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve living in a perfect world in the garden. Marriage made in heaven. They were created for one another. They had everything they needed and more, and they even walked with God. Yet a crafty serpent was able to deceive Eve, deceive her into thinking she needed something more, something that she didn't already have that would make her perfect world more perfect. Eve was deceived into thinking if she ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she too would be like God, and then her world would be perfect. The sin here is clearly, clearly pride. But I, I would suggest and strongly suggest that discontentment was the underlying factor. Eve was made to feel discontent even in her perfect world. So if we can agree that discontentment comes naturally, then discontentment is a behavior that needs to be replaced by another behavior, which is contentment. So we need to unlearn discontentment and learn contentment. Well, maybe you're not um, really with me on this. Maybe you don't know that and don't believe that. If you're not convinced, let's, let's check out what the wisest and the richest man who ever lived has to say about contentment. See, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes of his desperate search for the meaning of life. He uses everything at his disposal, pleasure after pleasure, to find that satisfaction. And it's not until he realizes that pleasure and satisfaction aren't found in the things of the world, but found in turning your life over to God. Here we have the wisest and the richest man learning contentment. Satisfaction and meaning are found not in the things of the world, but rather in the creator of the world himself, in God. So as far as application, what about us? Well, since discontentment comes naturally, first I think we need to admit we're sinners, and that as part of that sin nature, we're prone to discontentment. Once we realize that that's our default position, then we have to purposely and deliberately do something about it. We've got to unlearn discontentment and learn contentment. We need to change our, our focus from me to God. Me-centered, God-centered. Hopefully this is going to start to take better shape as the sermon progresses. Okay, so what else do we need to learn about contentment? Well, that brings me to my second point. We can be content despite what we lack. We can be content despite what we lack. Verse 12 of the passage reads, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Well. Who's a better example of finding true joy in the face of powerful, mighty hardships than the Apostle Paul himself? You see, Apostle Paul wrote Philippians, he wrote Ephesians, he wrote 1 and 2 Corinthians, and other, many other books of the Bible. 
of the New Testament. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he writes a quite an impressive resume of the suffering he endured at the hands of others as he tried to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and anyone else, for that matter, who would listen. You see, in, in, in um, Paul, as he's comparing his, um, his, himself to those who are trying to undermine his work in Corinth, writes in chapter 2, verses 23 and 28, the following. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I, I received from the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. I was shipwrecked. I spent the night in the day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move, in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I have been cold and naked and beside everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for the churches. Wow. Wow. Again, 1 Timothy, verse 6, 6 through 8, Paul writes, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we have brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Again, we're in chapter 4 of Philippians, the chapter just ahead of it, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, Paul writes, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is in faith through Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And later on he goes, he says, forgetting what is behind, straining to what is ahead, I press on to the goal to win the prize that God called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So if it's true that we can be content despite what we lack, what should our response be? Well, again, the Apostle Paul is constantly reminding the churches, and by way of extension, he's reminding us that we need to examine ourselves constantly, sort of run some spiritual vital sign checks. So let's do some diagnostics. Can I, like Paul, say anything I have is nothing compared to the surpassing worth of Jesus? Have I lost anything because of Jesus? Or if I do, or do now or in the future, can I consider them as garbage compared to what Christ has given me? Can I, like Paul, say in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, forgetting what is behind me and straining on toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal for which 
to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus? Can I say these things? Or do I even think about this? So, if we can be content despite what we lack, what about contentment in times of plenty? That's going to bring me to my third point. We can be content despite what we have. We can be content despite what we have. Again in verse 12, this is confirmed. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. See, being content with plenty should really be a no-brainer. I mean, things are going well. You're healthy, sunny day, wife's happy, everything's going well, full bank account, full belly. No-brainer. If you can't be content in times of plenty, something's got to be wrong. Well, I'm here to tell you, folks, something's wrong, and it's very wrong. You remember Solomon, you know, the one who had everything? Obviously wasn't content with everything. He writes in Ecclesiastes about his futile search, using everything and anything to try to find contentment. All his wealth, all his wisdom, his achievements fall short. He had over 600 wives, denied himself nothing, and still couldn't find what he was looking for. In Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10, he writes, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This is all from the wisest and the richest man ever to live who God personally blessed with wisdom and threw in wealth above all to boot. Even with all his wisdom, his possessions became a curse to him. It drew him away from God and ultimately resulted in his kingdom being divided in his reign. So does that sound like possessions bring satisfaction? So if the wisest, the richest man that ever lived is cursed by everything he's obtained, how is it possible for one not so wise and not so rich to find contentment despite my possessions? Well, strangely, this is found also in Ecclesiastes, the solution. At the very end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon gives us his results. After looking for the, to the world for answers, he decides to look to the creator of the world, and bingo, he hits it. Solomon spent all his time looking for contentment under the sun. In the NIV, Solomon uses that phrase 29 times, under the sun. That could easily be translated to in this world. He exhausts everything to find contentment and meaning. Anything at his, at his, his disposal, anything. It wasn't until he looked over the sun to the creator of the sun and life itself, did he find what he's looking for. Very simply stated, Solomon learned satisfaction from the gifts of the world, not from the gifts of the world, but rather from the giver of those gifts, the Lord himself. I'm not telling you this because I want you to be guilty for having things. 
God has blessed us all with a lot, with more than a lot, and he wants us to enjoy it. But our priorities need to be in check. We need to make sure that we're pursuing the giver of the gifts rather than the gifts. Well, my fourth application is very closely related to my third. But in light of today's culture, I think it's a major, major point. And that is we can be content despite what others have. We can be content despite what others have. Again, in verse 12, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So why is this such a major point? Well, today's culture, what other people have, is a major source of our discontentment. It's an area where we're most vulnerable, and unfortunately, it's also what makes our economy boom. You see, the Rolling Stones realized it, but so did the ad men on Madison Avenue. Each and every day, we're bombarded with the notion that we need more and more, that we need bigger and better, that we need new and improved. In this world, if we want to be successful, we need specific things, and we need plenty of them. Each day, some man or woman, or child even for that matter, comes on the radio, TV, billboards, internet. He's telling us more and more how white our shirts should be, or what car we need to drive, or phone we need to have, or, or you name it. Our economy is driven mostly by our discontentment, and our discontentment is definitely driven by our desire to have more than the other guy. So much so, that I believe if we all of a sudden all became content, the economy would collapse. We would have an economic depression. But you don't have to worry about that because right here in the 21st century, the human condition ensures that it's in this world, if he has it, I need it, or he's better than me. A few years ago, Barb and I were blessed to facilitate a young adult Sunday school while looking for materials that were relevant to the class and to that age group, we came across a, a series by Jeff Mannion, who's a, a pastor at Ada Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Well, he had a four-part series entitled Satisfaction, and it's uh, based on the book of Matthew, Matthew 20, which is the story of the workers in the vineyard. Well, Jeff, Jeff's a mighty, powerful storyteller. He's a very compassionate man very well-spoken, and he had so many good examples to support his, his series. But two struck with me most, and I would, I would like to share them with you. First, he tells the story of a young boy whose father gives him a bowl of ice cream. It's in the summertime, it's late in the evening, hot day, they've had their barbecue, they're sitting around, dusk, you know that, summertime, right? Well, the father looks at the son and says, hey, how about some ice cream? And the kid's face lights up. Sure, Dad, sure. So the father goes in, grabs two bowls, comes out on the porch, scoops out the ice cream. The son is overjoyed. He's living large. He's eating that ice cream. He's content. Next day, same scenario, same type of weather, same dusk. Father says to the boy, hey, how about some ice cream? Boy remembering yesterday, sure, Dad, that's great. I love it. Yeah, come on, bring it on. 
But this time, the boy's younger brother's there. So the father says, hey, how about some ice cream to the younger brother? The younger brother lights up, sure, dad. Father goes in, grabs three bowls, comes back out to the porch, scoops out the bowls. And in scooping out the bowls, bowls of ice cream, this time he gives the younger son more than the older son. And immediately, the older son is no longer satisfied with what he has. But he's now wondering and wants to know why his younger brother got more than him. You see, he turned his focus from his brother's joy to his joy, from his joy to his brother's joy. And as he turns from his bowl of ice cream to his brother's bowl of ice cream, he loses his contentment and he loses his joy. Pastor Mannion also gives an example of a young couple trying to buy their first home, struggling there, trying to find a down payment. They get the down payment, they find somebody to give them a mortgage, they find this modest two-bedroom, one-bath home on a 100 by 100 lot, needs a little bit of TLC, some updating, probably a lot of work, but hey, it's going to be theirs. Closing day comes, they sign the papers, they get the key, and they head out to their new home. You know, as they drive to their new neighborhood, they're elated. They're a buzz and they're a glow. They drive to their new home and they park in the driveway. They just sit there. They say nothing. They're soaking it all in. They are so excited, so thankful, so content. Well, fast forward one month and they get a call from an old friend that's been away and moved back into the area. He asks them for dinner, you know, and he was a good friend, and they're excited to see him. They hadn't seen him in a long time, so they accept. Well, the evening comes, and they drive to their friend's house. And as they drive to their friend's house, they notice the neighborhood is much more well-to-do than theirs. They pull up into the driveway, and there's a sprawling home, huge, larger than theirs. It's on a nicely manicured one-acre lot. Well, they go inside, updated tastefully furnished, open concept, HGTV kitchen, you know, McMansion style. Well, they have a lovely evening, and then they leave. And on the way home, they say very, very little to one another. And they pull into their driveway, and now they just sit there. All of a sudden, that house that was so wonderful, such a source of joy and contentment, is now not so wonderful at all and a source of heartache and disappointment. Well, what just happened here? Well, just like the boy with the ice cream, they took their eyes off their joy, and they compared it to their friend's joy. And in comparing that to their friend's, they come up short. Why is it that when we compare, we tend to look at what others have that we don't? Why don't we just look at what we have and be happy and leave it at that. How come we don't just count our blessings instead of allowing someone else's joy to rob us of our own contentment? When I was developing this sermon, I wanted to come up with an illustration, something that we could remember when we catch ourselves griping and grumbling, something that would stop us dead in our tracks, something that could change our griping, grumbling into praise. And I thought of a quote. I remember the quote. I just didn't know who's, who wrote it. So tech-savvy tech guy that I am, 
I Google it, and sure enough, a poet, Persian poet from 1250 AD, Saadi, I believe it's pronounced, he wrote this, and I think it's powerful and it's meaningful. I cried because I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. Well, how do we deal with being discontent with what we have? And also, how do we deal with being discontent with what others have that we don't? Why is our contentment so dependent upon what others have that we don't? Well, firstly, I think it's a matter of perception of value. If we view things from the eternal perspective, which is God-centered, rather than a temporal perspective, which is me-centered, we're going to find meaning instead of futility. We're going to find contentment instead of dissatisfaction. Solomon comes to that conclusion at the end of Ecclesiastes. You know, as Christians, we're always, always being told you need to live in the world and not be of the world. Well, that's a real catchy little slogan for us Christians to live by if we knew what it meant. I think it means this, that we live in a man-centered culture, more specifically a me-centered culture, where stuff matters, status rules, cash is king, pleasure's paramount, and it's always, always, always look out for number one. We need to, however, live in this man-centered world with a God-centered perspective, which is... Stuff's going to burn up. Status is temporary. Pleasure does have a place, but it's not paramount. And if we strive to be first, that is the greatest in the, in, on earth, we're going to be servant to all. That's the least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells us this. You see, museums are filled with treasures that pharaohs tried to bring with them to the afterlife, and it just didn't work. So what's the cure? What's our antidote? Well, Jesus brings this home to us in the book of Matthew. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, neither thieves come in, break in, and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And secondly, I think it's a matter of, of perception of justice. You know, it's, it's not fair that that guy has this and I don't. You know, it's not really fair that this happened to me and not to someone else. It's, it's not fair. It's just not fair. Again, perception skewed. Again, me-centered, not God-centered. You see, God has made everything, and he's in control of everything. He's even in control of our circumstances as well. He knows the beginning from the end. He, not me, makes the rule. He, not us, is God over the universe. He calls the shots. See, he, knows, he has the right. He has the right to give to whomever he wants, whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and however he wants to do it. He knows what he wants to accomplish, and he knows how to get it accomplished. His ways are perfect. They're higher than ours. He is God. He created us. We owe him everything, and like it or not, he owes us nothing. In our view of, of justice, we ask, how can a loving God allow such bad things to happen to good people? 
Or, how can a loving God allow so much evil or violence or hatred in this world? You know, I, I, I can't believe in a God who would allow someone to go to hell. That, that's not my God. Well, by saying this or even thinking this, we're creating a God and we're creating him in our own image rather than the other way around. And if that isn't the epitome of me-centeredness, I don't think there's a better way to describe it. Well, thirdly, it's a matter of trust. Is God who he says he is? Does he have a plan? Can he be trusted to bring the plan to fruition? Do we, you and I, trust him? Do we trust him with our lives? We all should and can find contentment apart from our possessions, our achievements, or accomplishments. If our contentment is based on temporal things, it's only logical that our contentment can only be temporal. I'll say, I'll say that again. If our contentment is based on temporal things, then our contentment can only be temporal. So, what have we covered so far? Well, we've learned that contentment is learned, not earned. We can be content despite what we lack. We can be content despite what we have. And we can be content despite what others have. Well, here is the moment you've all been waiting for. My final point, which is contentment comes from seeing the sovereignty and sufficiency of Christ. Contentment comes from seeing the sovereignty and sufficiency of Christ. In verse 13 of the passage, Paul says, I can do all this through him, that is Christ, who gives me strength. You know, in, in today's culture, that is a often used quote, of, often used but also too often misapplied. I can remember watching the Olympic diving, and one of the Olympic divers had just won the gold medal. And she was being interviewed. And when interviewed, she quotes this verse. And right away, I know she's a Christian. I, right away, I know she's giving glory to her God. I'm elated. She's out there on national TV. She's out there on global TV saying, God is Lord. I'm giving him glory. But unfortunately, it's not what Paul was talking about when he wrote this letter to the Philippians. See, Paul was talking about being content in good and bad. He was telling the Christians in Philippi that he had learned to be content by trusting God's sovereignty, Jesus' sovereignty, and sufficiency. And by way of application, we need, to, we need to do the same. Looking at it in its context, Paul found the secret of contentment in plenty and want through Christ giving him strength in all things and through all things. Paul wasn't talking about contentment. He was, excuse me, Paul wasn't talking about achievement. He was talking about contentment. Should have had the water before I said that. What Paul is telling us that is in his life with all its ups and downs, all its goods and bads, very good and very bad, he learned to be content in and through Jesus Christ. Paul's goal and focus in life can be summed up in two words, Jesus Christ. Paul identified with Christ 
Paul believed that Christ was who he said he was, and he believed he had the power to sustain him through all things. We need to believe that also. Furthermore, Paul truly had to believe that anything gained apart from Christ is lost. And whatever he lost, he could consider as garbage, that he might gain Christ. Paul's goal in life was to know Christ, be found in him, and know the power of his resurrection. In short, Paul sold out to Christ. He sold out to Jesus' sovereignty and sufficiency. Paul learned that in order to be content, you need to examine yourself to try to figure out what your goal is, where your treasure is, and where you're storing it. If your life is egocentric and you're trying to amass status and stuff and be number one, Paul's formula is not going to work. It's not going to work for you. But if your life is Christ-centered, goals are kingdom purposes, purposed. If you, like Paul, think it's all about Jesus, then you too are going to find contentment in any and every situation. So what's your treasure? Where are you storing it? Again, it's back to focus. Again, it's to back to what is our goal. Do we, you and me, only want Jesus to serve us as our Savior? Or do we want to accept him as our Savior and serve him as our Lord? We need to do both, have him as our Lord and our Savior. Well, I'm going to close with this story. A few years ago, Calvary had a mission trip to Zimbabwe. Nine of us from Calvary, including my wife, Barb, and daughters, Bethany and Julianne, and five others went to Zimbabwe and had an amazing, amazing time and experience. God certainly used us mightily and stretched us in the process. After a sort of a mountaintop experience, everything was going well. We were having a ball. Things were getting done. Jesus was being glorified. Well, we... After this trip, last day, we get treated to a day at a game preserve. Well, we're walking around in, in touching distance of, of zebras, walking right with them. We're driven through herds of wild water buffaloes, and each of us are given a ride on an elephant. Well, Barb and I's turn come. We get on the elephant, and we start our ride. And as we're coming back around to the platform, the elephant gets spooked and bolts. And he throws Barb and I to the ground and, and attacks the driver. Well, I was bruised up a little bit. Barb ends up with a lacerated spleen and cracked pelvis and has to be transported to the hospital in Harare. Well, the driver, thankfully, after being uh, thrown, her scurries into the tall grass and hides himself and comes out with a twisted knee but a very, very traumatized spirit. Well, the rest of the team heads to the airport. It became evident that Barb and I weren't going to be able to travel. So I, I meet the group at the airport, and I handwrote, I handwrite a, um, a guardianship document naming Paul Emma as Julianne's temporary guardian for the trip. She was only 16 at the time. So the plane leaves, and I head back to the, to the hospital. Barb and I are reeling. Our traumatized children and our and a traumatized team are back on their way to the U.S., and Barb and I are in Zen, facing who knows what. 
So helpless is probably not a good enough adjective, but it's the only one I can come up with to describe our state. Well, we had one diagnosis that said Barb would be able to fly in a week or so, and another that said, well, she goes up in the airplane and her spleen bursts, she's not gonna make it. By the time the plane lands, she'll be dead. So we had to choose between a plane ride home to our children and major surgery in a third world country. Now, confession. Barb and I were trying to hang on to that first diagnosis of traveling in a week. We wanted to do everything to travel in a week. But because of some wise counsel and powerful prayers of some godly Christians, a few are in the room today here, we decided to have the surgery. We decided to look for God's plan instead of our plan. We decided to look for God and his purposes in all of it. You know what? He shows up big time. Not all at once, quietly and steadily. Not only did he provide for us world-class doctors that just happened to be in Zimbabwe at the time, he also showed us the reasons for what happened, and he blessed us powerfully as he accomplished them through us. See, once we changed our focus to what was happening to us, what God wanted to do with what was happening to us. The tragedy turned into a blessing for us and for those who God brought into our path and our extended stay in Zim. See, if you don't believe me, just ask Barb. What, ask her, what was the highlight of our trip? Well, she's going to get a little teary, but she's going to smile, and then she's going to say, our elephant ride. See, but don't get me wrong. I was born and raised right here in New Jersey. That is not my default position. When it comes to complaining, I'm right up there with the rest of you guys. You know, I'm here. I've got to catch myself, and I've got to try to refocus on what's truly important. You see, the fact that we were on a mission trip and everything was powerful that God did, we were close to God, and we saw him move. So naturally, we look for him in the storm. But, you know, the fact is that we Christians, we're always on mission trips, no matter where we are or what we're doing. It's got to be our default position to look for God in the storm. And we've got to look for him in the blessings. We've got to learn contentment. When we have good times, which are times of plenty, when we have bad times, times of want, we have to ask ourselves, where's our hope? What's our hope in, God or stuff? What's our trust in? Jesus or something much less. I've got to learn, you've got to learn, I've got to learn. We've got to learn that we can be content with what we have, with what we lack, and even, yes, what others have that we don't. You see, is God who he says he is, and is he worthy of our trust? Is he sovereign, and is he sufficient? I didn't plan that. I should have planned that. <laughs> you know, on the cross, Jesus cries out to Telestai. That means it's finished. That's not usually listed among the promises of God, but I think it's his biggest promise to us. The fact that Jesus was able to say to Telestai, 
shows both his sovereignty and his sufficiency. His sovereignty because he has the power to back up what he says. He proved that with the resurrection. His sufficiency because he's truly enough. He's more than enough. See, on the cross, Jesus paid it all. And if I believe what I believe, and that's what I believe, if I believe what I believe, if I believe it's truly finished, then I am forgiven for everything that I've ever done or ever will do that is wrong. My place in eternity is secure with Jesus. Everything else in this world becomes take it or leave it. That makes me free. It makes me free from the fear of death, free from the deceit of stuff, free from worry, stress, strife, free to focus on what Jesus has done for me, and free to focus on what I should be doing for the kingdom and for Jesus' sake. And it frees me from my discontentment that robs me of my joy. You know, that the fact that it's truly finished puts everything in its proper perspective. Jesus endured the cross for me. He endured it for you. He endured it for us. And if we believe that, what should our response be? Well, like Paul, we need to be egocentrically Christocentric. Egocentrically Christocentric. Okay, that's nice. What does that mean? Well, it means this. We need to be all of, it needs to be all about us being all about Jesus. And if we can do that, like Paul, we'll have found the secret to Christian contentment in the secular world, and our satisfaction is guaranteed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your provision, and we thank you that you are sovereign and sufficient. We thank you for so much, Lord. Forgive us that we take for granted what we have. Forgive us, Father, when we lose our focus and, and becomes me rather than you. Father, help us today. Impart to us your goodness and mercy. Impart to us the knowledge of knowing you in a better way. Impart to us your word that we would hide it in our hearts. We're so grateful for your love. We're so grateful that we can be content that you are in control, that you have a plan, that everything is settled, that it is finished. We thank you in Jesus' name.